This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined on Football CFB this evening by Warren Barton. A very interesting career. It went from Maidstone United to Newcastle United, Wimbledon in between. Wimbledon also came after. Got capped for England three times, which not everyone can say as well. Warren, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, uh, to say the least. And you know, being told a couple of times when you're younger, you're not going to make it, you're too small. And you know, like you've said, to go and represent your country, play for a big club like Newcastle, uh, FA Cups, Champions League. Yeah, it was a, it was a hell of a journey. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I miss it every day. But, uh, you know, as you can see now, I'm in the sunshine, so it's not so bad. <laughs> in terms of your start, Starting at Maidstone United, what was that like for you? I imagine you learned very quickly at that level of football. Yes, yeah. As I said, just going back for when I was like 16, and you look you look too young, my friend, but it was the first start of the YTS scheme. Um, and I was at Leighton Orient where we was getting £27.50 a week, uh, plus expenses to to try and play uh, at a high level of, at, um, in the Football League. And unfortunately, Frank Clark, who was a, a big Newcastle legend, obviously, uh, told me on the last game of the season he wasn't going to take me on. He thought I was too small and physically couldn't handle it. So I had to drop down to non-league uh, for a couple of years, a couple of seasons, which was probably the best thing for me. You know, I, I went into a changing room with builders, electrician, you know, uh, policemen. Uh, as I said, people working on the building site. So it was a real learning curve straight away. Uh, and when you're, you know, five foot five, five foot six, walking into that, it was it was going to be a bit daunting. But I grew up quickly, uh, had good people around me um, at Dagenham and Redbridge, and then later on went to Maidstone. Um, I could have stayed non-league football uh, and earned more money at places like Barnet with Barry Fry, uh, but I had the chance to go to Maidstone with Keith Peacock and playing in the football league. Uh, for £250 a week and it, it was a dream come true because you know when you've been told twice you're not going to make it and then you're max, making your debut in the football league it was um, a bit a proud moment for me although it was in the lower leagues it was still a starting point for me uh, and it moved on pretty quickly but yeah it was great you know people like Tommy Taylor the great uh, West Ham player was was one of the coaches and learned a lot off of him uh, but the non-league foundation was great for me it it really turned me into a, a naive young boy into a, still a young man, uh, but you know, not so green around the, the gills, as they say, and uh, I grew up pretty quickly. In terms of Maidstone, you were clearly playing well and interest was, was in for you from, from many clubs. When, when did you first think there was an opportunity that you were going to move? Because when you go to Wimbledon, 300 grand at the time was the largest sum paid for a fourth division player. Yeah, no, it was uh, the club have, have done well, Maidstone. As I said, we was, you know, travelling by British Rail rather than going on buses. And so they, they had a, a bit of expenses there to spend out. Uh, and I think being so close to just outside of London, it was actually playing at Dartford rather than at Maidstone. Anyone that knows that area, Maidstone's probably another 20, 30 miles further outside of London. So it's quite easy for scouts at the time to come and watch. 
obviously we was doing well, as you said, at, uh, at Maidstone. And there was a bit of interest from whether it was uh, Tottenham at the time, Wimbledon would have been sniffing around. And at that time, it was when Dennis Wise was just looking to go to Chelsea. Uh, and as Newcastle, as they uh, sorry, as Wimbledon as they was, they was always looking a bit earlier to get a replacement. So it was about February time. We'd done well in the FA Cup. I'd scored a goal. There was a bit of interest there. Um, we played Cambridge United in the playoffs and they had Dion Dublin. And obviously myself was playing um, for Maidstone. So there was quite a few scouts there at the time. And um, that's when really February, March, and then obviously going into the playoffs is when it really kicked in. And you know, for Maystone, I was there really 10 months. Uh, and for Wimbledon to pay that type of money um, doesn't sound a lot now. It's someone's week's wages for some of these players. But at the time and still at the time, it, for now, it's a record for them to, to spend for a lower league player for Maidstone to receive that. So it was a big deal. Um, and again, that background of non-league going into a crazy gang Wimbledon changing room. <laughs> Uh, was was quite fitting to be honest but yeah it was about February March time when there was a bit of interest as we was doing well we didn't quite make the playoffs and John Beck and Cambridge beaters and went off with Dion Dublin uh, in their side um, and we both obviously with our careers me and Dion uh, we felt like we had decent careers obviously. In terms of the move to Wimbledon did you expect to get straight into the first team there because you you, you stamped your authority on it pretty quickly? Um, that was always my goal, you know, uh, even at Maidstone, when I first went to Maidstone, they'd had players that had played in the lower league and won the championship. They was the first team. So I had to be patient pre-season, got a chance in the first game, didn't play a couple of games and then obviously cemented my place uh, after that. And it was the same at Wimbledon, really. You know, it was I had to prove myself, um, had to work extremely hard, which I did in the off-season, got myself as fit as I possibly could. Went into a change room, as I said, that was... was um, Testing to say the least, you know, whether it was mentally or your clothes or your car, but I hit the ground running, you know, and I think, you know, with Keith Cole, with um, Terry Phelan, these type of players, and obviously Vinnie Jones and John Fashionew was there, John Scowls, um, we, we had a, a good surrounding of good players. And um, as I said, I earned the right pretty much in the pre-season, did well. And then obviously a lot of it early on, my friend, was actually I was playing midfield um, rather than playing fullback. Um, which maybe suited me being that athlete, getting up and down, getting some deliveries into the box. So it was, um, it was pretty, it happened pretty quickly. And again, I had to earn the respect from the players. And I think I did that in the pre-season time. You, you mentioned playing in midfield and you also mentioned Vinnie Jones. We all know him as a, a Hollywood star that he's went on to be. What was he like as a footballer at that time? Because a lot of people talk about Vinnie and say that a lot of people sort of brush over his football career when he was better than a lot of people gave him credit for. Yeah, no, he was. You know, listen, he's not Zidane, and it'd be the first one to admit, admit that. But what he was was hardworking, honest, and committed. And what he uh, would do as well is drive you on. You know, he made you not be in fear of anybody, and not physically and you know uh, outrageously. It was like, don't worry about things. Just get out there. We stick together. I, may, I remember early on in my career, we played Everton at home at the Old Plough Lane, and there was a bit of a scuffle in midfield, as you would imagine. And Everton was a team that could look after itself. You know, people at that time had Kevin Ratcliffe that was playing. So they had some leaders and some men. So I went over to break it up, the scuffle. John Fashion, you come over. I mean, pushed me out the way, went flying. We went into the changing room at half time, And he said, don't ever do that again. And I said, what, what do you mean? He went, it's always us against them. No matter what it is, it's us against them. And Arsenal had that sort of mentality with Adams and Winterburn and Keown. They would all go flying over. And we had to do that because we didn't maybe have the ability. So earlier on with Vinny, it was about sticking together, 
we maybe didn't have the resources, but with hard work, effort, we'd all got a little bit of a, a chip on our shoulder because we'd been rejected somewhere along the line in our career. And we wanted to prove the point. And that's where uh, we was a sticking together. And we'd win a lot of games, whether it was against Norwich, uh, Coventry, Southampton. We'd win it in the tunnel before we even got out there. Um, and, you know, as I said, we, we had some good players, you know, players that went on to represent, you know, people like Terry Phelan and Keith going for England, myself, England, John Scales. So we had some people that uh, played at a high level. And uh, Vinny was a big part of that, you know, his career. He, he would always afterwards with Mick Hartford, another well-known player. Uh, Mick was the first one really after Tommy Taylor as a player would say, come and do some crossing, come and do some fish finishing. And Vinny would be the same. And Vinny would have a word in your ear if he was getting a little bit carried away. Look, your time will come. You will get your move, but you just have to be patient. Wimbledon fascinate me. As I say, you mentioned my age earlier, I'm 25, but I love looking back at the Premier League years and, and even the years before the Premier League. When you look at that Wimbledon team, you didn't have the biggest budget. You didn't have the most glamorous facilities compared to maybe some of the, the clubs in the Premier League now. But under Joe Kinnear in particular, when he comes in, you always punched above your weight, finishing in the top flight. I mean, you finished sixth in the league, which when you consider the size of Wimbledon and the resources and facilities you had compared to your rivals is is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating what we did and you, you say you're really curious about Wimbledon when I a quick story when I first got into the England setup you had people like uh, Paul Ince, David Platt, uh, uh, Wrighty was there and they would ask me about Wimbledon they wasn't really worried about speaking about maybe Stan Collymore or someone else that was breaking into to a team they wanted to know is Wimbledon really like that do you really do the things that you say and, and goes on so there's a bit there's a real interest about you know, when John Hartson signed for a record seven million, the first thing they did was set all his clothes on fire. So, you know, it, it wouldn't happen <laughs> at any other club. So, you know, when you had people like that, you know, Paul Ince and, and Wrighty, as I said, and David Platt asking me about Wimbledon, is it really like that? And did the owner really slash your tyres when you got picked in the England squad? I said, yeah, he, he did. That's what we did. And we used to train on a park where people would be walking dogs and we'd be out there with the, the owner, Sam, a man having races on the field and he'd be wearing his little belly shoes and he'd be slipping over and we'd be pushing him in puddles and we'd invite journalists down. Good job, you never come down. We'd invite you down and we'd throw you in a puddle and strip you them type of things we, we, we would do. And, um, and that was part of the culture uh, that we had with Wimbledon. And that carried on into the field. And Joe Kinnear was perfect for that team. You know, he would just let us really do what we've got to do. And he would back us in the media. He would put the team together. And they had a great uh, assistant coach, Terry Burton, who have come from Arsenal Academy, come along with, with, Joe, uh, with Joe. And, you know, Joe would be out there with the voice and putting it all together. Um, and we always knew Joe was lying when he started scratching his head. So we all, we all knew it and it was quite a funny. But <laughs> Ter Terry Burton was the one uh, that would, you know, coach us to get us out there. But Joe was brilliant in the sense of motivating us, doing the team talks, putting the team together, bringing some of the younger players through at the time, like Jason Newell, Marcus Gale come from Brentford, Dean Holdsworth had come from Brentford. Again, their recruiting system they had uh, with a guy called Roger Smith, actually Gary Smith's son is now the coach at Nashville. Uh, he was there as well. So they had a great recruiting system and it was more about the character than the players. So that's what they, they really bought into. And that's why we, as I said, finished in my season, sixth, eighth, ninth and 10th. So, you know, we, we'd had that and, we had goal scorers. We played a certain way, uh, even moving to uh, a plough lane that was quite intimidating, to say the least. 
into sellers part, which is a bit more luxurious, uh, we still managed to grind out results and get results. And, and that winning mentality and sticking together uh, was a big part of what Joe wanted. You know, he was the first one to start doing cool downs and stretching. And that was taking us to David Lloyd's to have a jacuzzi and then have a drink and a, a, a bit of pasta afterwards. So that, that was really his cool down after a game. In terms of the crazy gang, you've talked about the fact Ince and, and Wright wanted to know about it. With the antics that were going on, did, do you think that took pressure off of the team because it relaxed you and, and you, you had that fun? And also, as a second part to that question, could you tell in the tunnel that teams were intimidated by the big characters like Fashionu and Jones and, and others as well? Yeah, I'll answer your second question first. We knew in the tunnel, because you'd always, as I said, Southampton, Coventry, Norwich, there'd always be one centre, and it was always a centre-half, and I don't know why they're so stupid that one of them would say, Wimbledon, this is not the crazy gang of old. This, they haven't got the crazy gang mentality in the newspaper. So when we'd go to the game, we'd be in the tunnel. Big John Fashion would come out with his top off, and he's all odd up, and he's got muscle on muscle on muscle. And he'd look straight into the eye of the big centre-half who had said it and say, Hey, big man, me and you today, me and you, let's see how we go, Bubbler. And you could see the fear in his eyes and you could <laughs> see along the line that all of them, because then Vinny would come flying out. He'd say his few, few words. Me being brave as a lion, we'd get behind Vinny and say, yeah, go on. We're <laughs> so there was a few of us. And we, you know, as I said, we'd, we'd start a high tempo. We'd make it difficult and we'd win a lot of them games in the tunnel, as you, as you rightly said. And, you know, but we did have players that could play. Um and being part of that was being that togetherness and relaxed and, and trusting each other. You know, I remember Richard Keyes, first time with Sky, come along Selhurst Park um, along the tunnel. And we're all in a room and this is a lot, you know, we're getting ready before a game, a big game on a Monday, a Monday night. It's going to be shown on Monday night football uh, when Sky first started. So Richard's come along, he's done a rehearsal and we're thinking, surely he's not going to do it again. And don't forget, Joe Kinnear is trying to get us organised to play Man City or whoever it was on a Monday night. So we're watching now. We're more interested in the, in the physio's room, watching the screen of the live uh, hit coming out of Sky. So now we see that Richard is down the tunnel. So he said, here we are at Selhurst Park, Monday night. You can hear the system because we used to have the music box on and Wimbledon, the crazy gang. And this is Manchester City getting ready with Peter Reed's team. This is the the um, referee's room. And as he got to our room, we dragged him in. This is live on TV. Dragged him in, cut his tie, wrapped all his hair and threw him in the tunnel back again. Richard being the professional is still kept talking, done his hit and finished the game. So now, you know, 90 seconds later, we're playing a game. We end up winning it one nil or two nil. But that shows how relaxed and together we was. We wasn't worried about Joe set pieces or who's going to be in the wall. We knew that. We'd sort that out between us. Um, but that fun and team spirit carried on, uh, even with Sky and Richard Keyes going down the tunnel, getting dragged in and his tie cut off. So, uh, and great credit to Richard. He took it fairly. And well, I think he was petrified because he thought he was quite lucky. He just got his, his tie cut and pushed out there. But that was part of us. That was part of what we do. Top 10 finishes galore, as you mentioned. You're playing good football. You're excelling. There's interest in you. Newcastle United come calling and they make you the most def the expensive defender in English football. Did you feel any pressure whatsoever with that price tag and the tag of that well, that title as well? No, I felt pride. Uh, as I said, going back to what had happened to me earlier on in my career, um, you know, playing non-league football, being rejected twice, you're not big enough, uh, not going to be able to make it, whether it was at Watford when I was 13 or at Leighton Orient when I was 16. There's not a lot you can do about the price tag, but it was just that, uh, pride of yeah you know what this is I'd gone from Wimbledon to wanted playing the Premier League 
and it was a football league at the time and be a Premier League player. My next step then was to try and win things. Now it was either Arsenal or it was Newcastle. I'd, I'd spoken to Celtic, I'd spoken to Man City, Everton, Sheffield Wednesday, but I was an Arsenal fan and I'd spoken to David Dean, but they were still in limbo with a manager. And I had 30 seconds with Kevin Keegan and my mind was made up and I played at St. James's Park and heard them fans. So it was a, it was a real simple decision um, to go there. So there was a lot of pride. What was quite beneficial for me, my friend, is that I got signed on the Monday. On the Wednesday, they signed Les Ferdinand for six million. And that sort of took the, not the shine off of me, but took the, the I wasn't the, the record then for Newcastle. It was Les. And then later on, it was Tino Esprit and so on and so on. And then obviously Alan Shearer come flying through the door. So that, that changed a few things. So, no, um, you know, the four of us being signed at the time, myself, Les, Shaka Hislop and obviously David Ginola, we was all in it together. Uh, and the team beforehand had done well. They finished, uh, I think, in sixth and then third. And then obviously we was brought in to try and get to the promised land to try and win it. So, no, there was a lot of pride Um Obviously, you want to play for a big club uh, and anyone that knows that area, they are a big club. They are ambitious. They want to try and compete. And that's what we was all brought in to try and do. When you look at that Newcastle team in that era, it was iconic for being the entertainers on the park. Even the kits were iconic. Kevin Keegan at the time was, he still is a great media personality, but even then he was, he was shining in the interviews and everyone wanted to speak to him. What was it like in that dressing room, especially as you got, that 10-point lead over United. You mentioned Ginola, a big character. You mentioned Shaka Hislop, who seems like such a laid-back guy. You seem to have the perfect balance for, for so much of that season. Yeah, I mean, it was quite, you know, surreal at the time because we were just riding the wave. You know, the city of Newcastle was vibrant. There was building going on, construction everywhere. Uh, people in the city was was queuing for, you know, for, at midnight to get our shirts at the Adidas store with the granddad collars. They was queuing up at midnight with three, 4,000 people. There was 10,000 people waiting for season tickets. You know, every time we went out, you know, whether it was going out for a restaurant or you was just in the supermarket, people was asking about you. So it was a magnificent time. And, you know, looking across a changing room and you're seeing someone, I playing with David Ginola, some of the things he'd done, I'd never seen before or, or been on the same field as. And I, you know, lucky enough later on in my career, I played against Omri or Zidane, whoever it was. So, you know, you, you play against quality players and, David was phenomenal at that time. Les was scoring goals. Peter Beardsley was one of my favourite players, you know, being with him with England and Rob Lee and Steve Howie. Beresford, I knew. Pavel Cernicek, Pavel was in goal as well. So we had, you know, real good players um, around there. And then you had David Batty, Tino. We felt we had a great chance, uh, obviously. And um, we was riding the wave and it was coming easy. And then a little bit, the mind game started with Sir Alex Ferguson. We started to change our formation slightly with Kevin. Um, you know, before it was really, you know, a rigid 4-4-2, if you like. And then Peter and Les up front and it was working like a dream. Tino come in, give us a little bit of a spark and then change the system a little. And it wasn't Tino, it was Kevin's, you know, Kevin made the decision. And it just, we lost our balance and it was like anything. It was having like sand in your hands and it was just slipping through because the harder we tried, the worse it got. Some credit to United, they kept plugging away. Smichael was saving, Cantona was scoring. Um, and they just kept on chipping away. And unfortunately, in the end, maybe, you know, not maybe, we didn't have that mental resilience and toughness just to get us over the finishing line. But it was a wonderful time. You know, it was a magnificent time. Like you said, it was iconic with the Premier League. The games against Liverpool, the four threes, you know, the 5-0 against Man United. You know, they, all these you know games that we had 
was iconic in in the history of the Premier League. And you put on top of that the style of football that we played. You know, they talk about City how how they play. You know, we was having our fullbacks playing as wingers. <laughs> so you know, that's how how different it was at the time. And you know, the style of football was was wonderful, and the people that it was with. And I think it shows you now. We're all on a, a WhatsApp uh, list as well. Social media, we always keep in contact, whether it's Tino in Colombia or John Beresford in Sheffield. You know, we always keep in contact with everybody. Uh, and it was a wonderful time and a great time of my life. And life I never forget. And that's why when I look at what's happening at the moment, I get so upset and frustrated because I care because that club gave me everything. And I and I gave it everything. And, you know, that's when we had a magnificent time with Kevin and then Sir Bobby. I really have that affinity with the club and I, I just want them to do well. I want them to do what a Leicester have done, you know, or not even a Man United or a Man City or, you know, win title after title, but win something for the fans. Not for us, not for anything else, but for two reasons. The club deserve it, the football club and what's gone on before with all the history of the club and the fans. And that's not being patronising, that's being honest. Absolutely, I would agree with that. I think so many people listening would agree with that as well. And you, you mentioned Les Ferdinand. I was fortunate enough to speak to Les a few months ago. Great guy as well as a great player. You also played with Alan Shearer. You talked about that attacking style where, as a fullback, you're basically <laughs> a winner and you're bo- a winger and you're bombing on. Are Les and Alan the perfect strikers when you're playing that sort of system because they can hold the ball up, but also if you fire a cross in that they have to get on the end of, they'll do everything they can to get there as well. Yeah, the way I look at them too is that they make a bad ball into a good ball, you know, and there's a few times I'd hit a ball and, you know, all of a sudden they'd be there and they'd find it and they they anticipated if you was under pressure as a fullback, they'd make the run in behind or they'd come short or they'd just spin on the shoulder of the centre half and go the other direction. And they was just a, a perfect dream to be around, you know, um, both great fellas as well. First and foremost, there was no arrogance about them you know Alan was selfish determined wanting to be the number nine but he also respected Les and they looked at each other and uh, Les has said it now it look and whether it was the Arsenal back four or whether it was a lower league back four they'd say do you fancy it today because these lot won't be able to handle it and they won't be able to handle it and if they do on their day Alan and Les no one could handle them you know they was magnificent and intelligent players as well and like you said you could put a ball into the area and they get I mean Les's hang time was phenomenal you know Alan was a ruthless striker, is a ruthless striker. He would just score goals. Les, with his aerial threat and his runs and his pace, would do the other side for for Alan, but both of them were scoring goals. I mean, in the first season, they got 50 goals between them or 50-odd goals between them. So they was phenomenal. And throwing Peter Beersley in the middle of that, it was trying to give him the ball. So it wasn't just about crossing balls. You had someone like Peter that could feed him a pass. When you look at that entertainer's team, you've talked about the impact Kevin Keegan had on it. Were you surprised at all when he left at the time that he did and obviously was replaced by by Kenny Dalglish, who was another massive name in football? Yeah, we were totally shocked. Obviously, there was rumours about the club going on the stock exchange and maybe the purse strings was going to be tightened, but we thought, that's not a lot. We just beat beat Tottenham 7-1 at home in New Year, New Year's Day or the 2nd of January. So we thought there's nothing was getting ready for Aston Villa. And it was just a total shock for everybody, Um, you know, but that was Kevin. Kevin was, you know, you've seen the interview at Ellen Road, you know, he'd love it if we beat him. And you've seen how he was as a, as a person when the fans was there, you know, with 4,000 fans, 5,000 fans being at Maiden Castle, sitting on top of a hamburger stall, having a cup of of tea and a hamburger while we're having a training session. That's how Kevin was, you know, he was, 
a big, big part of the club and how we was going. So it was a major shock because 99.9 of us had gone there, not only for the fans, but for Kevin, first and foremost, because the way he was. And then for him to leave in such abrupt circumstances was a huge shock, you know, and, you know, Arthur Cox and Terry McDermott tried to quieten us down a little bit and get us get us back on the page. But it was always going to be difficult because of, of Kevin and um, and how he was and the relationship he had with all of us. Um, and until this day, you know, we still call him Gaffer. We'd still chat to him and straight away you'd have a smile on your face and how he would be so bubbly and positive. And, and that was that was KK all the time. Um, and then for Kenny to come in, obviously, it was instant respect. You know, he'd actually tried to buy me at Blackburn, uh, which was always nice because you think, well, then he's got a, a side for you there. But again, what a great football man. You know, maybe didn't have the charisma as, as KK, but football knowledge, looking after you as a player, intelligence, handling pressure. You know, he took it all on his shoulders and he didn't have to. Sometimes he was too honest, you know, and that's how... Kenny Dalglish was, you know, we'd play poorly and he'd say this was wrong, that was wrong, um, rather than just saying, you know, we was crap today and we've got to get it right. Um, but that's how Kenny Dalglish was. And um, everybody in the football club respected him. He didn't, you know, the style of football, we lost Tino Espria, we lost David Ginola, you know, we got a bit more prismatic and winning the games 1-0. Got us into the Champions League, got us into an FA Cup final. Um which hadn't been done for a long, long time. Um, so Kenny had come in. It's always difficult to come after someone like, you know, you ask David Moyes and Louis van Gaal after someone like Sir Alex. Uh, but Kenny was probably the only man that could handle that. Also Bobby Robson, also Bobby. But Bobby was, so Bobby was at Barcelona at the time. They tried to get him, but Kenny coming in was the ideal replacement because he wasn't phased by that. He quite relished that opportunity. I mean, he was a fantastic player himself and, obviously took uh, Kevin's number at, at Liverpool, you know, to come over and take that. That was a big, so he'd already done it once. So it was never going to phase him again. And, and Kenny was, you know, as I said, as a, as a manager and as a person, you know, I love him to death. And, um, you know, we still have to call him Sir Kenny now. So he, he quite likes that. In terms of Newcastle and the Champions League, what was it like playing at that level of football? And not only that, but with those fans behind you, because they're, they're passionate in a third round game against a more league <laughs> team, never mind against a Barcelona. Yeah, they was going berserk against Bradford and Watford at home. So when you play Barcelona and beat them 3-2, it was a, a, a special occasion. And going back to what I originally said, I went to the club to play in the Champions League, play in European football. And your, your first game in the Champions League for Newcastle, one being at home, was surreal with the whole Champions League signs and the theme of the music was going on as we walked in. But you're playing Barcelona with Figo, Luis Enrique, Rivaldo. Um, you know, these players are, are legendary at Barcelona and we was playing against them at home. Um, and the performance, particularly from... Tino gets the accolade, rightly so, because he scored a hat-trick and you should always get that uh, accolade. But Keith Gillespie was arguably, that's his best performance in a black and white shirt. He was terrific, you know, he was direct and we, we spoke about it with Kenny Dalglish about how Louis van Gaal was in charge. They liked the Dutch fullbacks to push on. So we was going to exploit their space in behind and it worked a treat for, for, for an hour. And then we upset them and Figo started getting on the ball and making things happen. But we, we earned the right, if you like to say, in the first hour to have that 
cushion at the end to, to do that. Shea Given had pulled off some some great saves as well. And the fans got us over that line at the end because we were we was hanging on. We didn't deserve to because I think we thoroughly deserved to win the game in the bigger picture. But games are like that. And uh, just at the end, their energy and their passion and their drive. You know, I remember picking the ball up for a throw-in with the 89 minutes going. And they was, you know, determined. Come on, come on, see it through. You know, we've got to see it through. And again, saying that, your hair's on the arm stick up. And that type of thing drove you through. You know, I think, yeah, I'm going to do it. It gives you that little bit. It's like when I did a London Marathon, you know. You're running around and someone's just standing there going, come on, you can do it. You think, I can't, I can't, but you can and you keep going. And it was the same thing with the uh, with, with the game there. They drove you on. And uh, at the end of it was just a wonderful occasion. So the whole setting of Champions League at St. James's Park against Barcelona, your, your striker scores a hat-trick. You know, it's what fairy tales are made of. And, you know, lucky enough, we had a few more games in the Champions League. So Bobby got his back in there as well against Inter Milan and playing against Juventus. So, you know, we, we had a little more of taste of European football and, you know, that we've been starved for a long time. But it was a, a wonderful, wonderful memory. You, you talked about getting to the FA Cup <clears throat> final. This, is that a moment that even now, looking back at it, still, still upsets you when you, you think what could have been for those Newcastle fans who we've talked about already? Yeah, and also for myself as a player, when I was 13, 14, when I was playing football over the field with my elder brother, John, it was about playing in a cup final, you know, playing for England, being Brian Robson, you know, scoring a goal in, in Mexico, with how he did with his, you know, that type of things as a kid drove me on. And then playing at Wembley, at the old Wembley, uh, coming through the stairs where you'd seen hundreds of games and hundreds of players come through there and then to see the the wall of the black and white shirts and the noise and the atmosphere and knowing the build-up beforehand you know the, the phone ringing off the hook they wanted tickets everybody's going down for the weekend and trying to get a ticket to watch the game if not we're going to go in a pub in London or go to Wembley I mean Wembley's not a great place to, to go and get going to have a drink but there was thousands of Geordies there just going to want it to be there and be at that occasion and we come up against a, a, a formidable team you know Arsene Wenger had just started turning that team with Patrick with uh, still having that back line but Anelka you know Emmanuel Batty in midfield Mark Overmars you know starting to turn that team into one of the best teams in Europe and um, I know later on people like Henri come and, and obviously uh, Robert Perez etc etc but they were just starting to be the double team and then Bloody sods law, we get to another cup final when playing against Man United, and that's the treble winning team. Uh, and then the following year, it's bloody Chelsea and, and Aston Villa, where we feel like we could have beaten them. But, um, you know, that, it was a real tough game. And we tried, you know, with with uh, Kenny, with Pastoni looking after Overmars, and that didn't really work out too well because over, Mark Overmars was sensational. And um, with the pace that they had of Anelka um, and the resilience they had at the back with Adams and, and, and Seaman and Winterburn and, and people like that, it was going to be a, a tough game for us. But, you know, one again, you look back with a bit of pride, but you, you go to these games to try and win it. And uh, But we come up against a team that was far better than us. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, you can only be honest enough and say, you know, we didn't play well. And even if we played well, they probably would have beaten us because they was, they was brilliant. They was a really, really good team. And, uh, you know, we didn't really give ourselves a bit of credit. But, you know, it, it just shows you again how the Geordies are. And I don't know if many people know that. We actually had a parade afterwards to say thank you to the fans. And there was thousands of them turned up, you know. And then that just shows you 
what the club means to the, the fans. You know, we, we was a little bit, we should be doing a parade for you because we, we was crap. And, you know, we didn't do you justice, but they felt like, you, okay, all right, you lost, but at least you had a go. You was crap, but you had a go. At least you tried. Um, and, and they sort of respected that uh, from us. So, you know, again, that was a, a time where we wanted to challenge. We, we expected to get the cup finals. You know, we beat Sheffield Wednesday. We beat Tottenham. We wanted to get in the cup finals. We wanted to get in the Champions League. We wanted to play European football. It wasn't, we're going to win it, we're going to be content. It's about, we want to compete. We want to be up there. Um, and, and we did that for a number of years. You, you certainly did. And, and, and talking of iconic managers uh, in the playing careers, you had Kevin Keegan, you have Kenny Dalglish, and then you have Ruth Hullet. How did you find Hullet? Because I've spoken to, to Craig Burley, who didn't didn't have him at all at Chelsea. I know Alan Shearer, obviously, and Ruth had the, had the, the fallen in and fallen out. How did you find him from your from your personal perspective? Rude was rude, you know. He was a, a first class player. I mean, a wonderful player. But his man management skills and is yeah, he's, he's arrogant. He's got that arrogance about him, you know. He's, he's a he was a top class player and he has that presence. And anytime you meet Rude, uh, he's a lot more humble now. He's a lot more humble now. But at the time, it was like you can't do this. You can't. And we said, we, probably we can't because you've been European player of the year three times. But, you know, tell us what we can do, you know, not what we can't do. And the thing with Rude, I think, let him down. He took things personal, like with Alan. It was a personal thing. It wasn't about a footballing decision. He can hide behind that, but it wasn't. I was there. It was a personal thing um, with, with Alan. And it affected the whole city and the, and the team. Um, he promised sexy football. It wasn't particularly great, but as... You know, it's funny as a person, he's got so much charisma and style and, you know, knowledge and to be around. And you think, well, why don't you carry that into the, the changing room rather than being a bit of a, you know, as I said, being personal and, you know, digging people out and being patronising to people. You know, he's not like that. And then but when he goes into being a manager, um, he was. And it was, as I said, it was a it was a tough time. Uh, we got through it. It was a tough era for the club. We'd gone from the highs to just drifting along. Uh, but then the sunshine come, Bobby come flying through the door. Um, and, you know, typical rude as well. We lost the game. He didn't even say goodbye. He was in a, in a plane, left six o'clock in the morning. It was a funny story as well. Alan will probably tell you, big Duncan Ferguson, that he left them out for the Sunderland game. Alan and being Duncan, they was, they dropped the kids off at school. They was at the changing room, at, at the training ground at about... 8, 8.30, waiting for the manager to come. He'd already gone. <laughs> He'd already packed his bags and gone. He weren't going to go into, into his office with them two because they would have probably throttled him. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, again, he left and, and off he went. So, um, you know, it, 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 was a, it, it was a challenging time. It was a big name, you know, obviously a, a world-class player. He'd gone in there, uh, but he was so disrespectful to you know people that have been highest level not you know not because they're friends but people like Rob Lee who'd been a great servant in the club telling him to go and train with the kids Stuart Pierce Nikos Dabizas and then bringing in what he was bringing in it wasn't it didn't sit right you know you do what you have to do because you're a player and you're actually playing for the the shirt not the not the manager at this point it's nice if you can play for the manager and the shirt because that that makes a, a winning recipe but we was playing for the shirt but you know myself Gary uh, Shay it just didn't feel right with us, you know, because our mates was over the other field and they should have been with us because they're putting players in that no nowhere near as good as Rob or Stuart or whoever it was, you know, um, and, and that's how, how it was. So it was a difficult time. We got through it. And then, as I said, the sunshine broke um, and so Bobby come flying through the door. 
you, you used the, the word sunshine and, and, and I'm glad you've used that word because obviously I've watched this documentary, see what you achieved at Ipswich with England, abroad of course with Barcelona, PSV and, and other clubs as well. What was he like to work with on a daily basis? Because everyone I've spoken to so far just says the same thing. He was warm, he was gentle, he was funny. He might get your name wrong sometimes, but you saw the sweet side of that as well. He was brilliant. He was the best I've ever had in, as a package, you know, uh, with the media, uh, his personality, with fans, with players, uh, with the community, not just fans, but, you know, we'd go into hospitals and speak to nurses and doctors. He was just a gentleman. Um, knew the game like the back of his hand. Um, great man management skills. Tactically, he was spot on with things that he did, the likes with Craig Bellamy, how he utilised him and Kieran Dyer to get what he could out of them and how he, he nurtured them along to be the, the top players that they turned out to be in the Premier League. Laurent Ribeur, people like him, finding him, bringing in. And what was something that was great with, with um, Sir Bobby, and Sir Alex had it to an extent, he knew how to use players enough just to where they wanted to be and then they'd go in and get in another direction. A, a quick example, two quick examples. The first player he bought when he came to the club, and he could have maybe got a few more, was Kevin Gallagher. And people was like, Kevin Gallagher, he's 32, 33. But he was brilliant for us. He would run the channels. He would play on the outside. His work rate, his commitment, his togetherness. He was fantastic for us. And it gave Craig, Kieran, that six months to adapt into what the Newcastle system was going to be under Sir Bobby Robson, playing on the front foot. The first thing he said to Alan as well, when he come in we, uh, on, the, on the Friday, why do you keep coming short? And Alan being Alan said, well, that effing idiot told me, rude, come, keep coming short. Bobby went, I want you to face the goal, score goal. That's what you are. You're number nine, go and score goals for this club. That's why you've got the number nine on the back of your shirt. We play Sheffield Wednesday the next day, we, we win 8-0, Alan gets five goals. I'm not, there was no tactical genius, but it was just that comment that he, he did. And even with myself, you know, I was playing well and, and doing really well. I was get, got to 33 and, it, you know, I had a really good relationship with Bobby and he helped me with my coaching badges and everything I am today, I try and emulate as him as a man, you know, how he can you know, open the door for a lady, let someone walk in, older people there, they sit down, and, whatever. That's how he was, you know, whether someone was younger than him, he'd still be polite and a gentleman and, and speak to him. So a lot of the things he did, I take on board and coaching and how he is with players. And he pulled me to the side. He said, look, you know, the time might have come, son, you know, and uh, I said, no, Gaffer, you know, I've been his captain, you know, I've been his vice captain and uh, the season before we got back into Europe, <clears throat> we're starting to do well, you know, as I said, J Jermaine Genius was coming in, Laura Mabur, you know, we was getting back into where we wanted to be. And he said, look, I don't know how much you're going to play. Uh, I don't want to take you to games and not play you because, you know, you've been a, a big part of this club. You're one of my, if you like, the blue chip players. You can either stay and then we'll get you into the coaching scene because I know that you want to do that or we'll, we'll help you move out. And I said, I want to play Gaffer. I'm still only 33. I'm a long time retired. I'm still doing my badges. So I've got plenty of time for that. And then two months later, I was gone to Derby. And at the time, it was like, you know, I'd say to Rob Lee or Alan, I think I can play. But Aaron Hughes was coming along. Andy Griffin was coming along. There was just that younger, quicker, direct players was coming along. Now, and it was, took me, you know, took me a couple of years. He was right. He was absolutely right for me and Rob to go at that time. Because Genus come in. As I said, Aaron Hughes come in. It was a great servant for the club. It was that time to turn it and I still thought I had another 18 months to go at the club because I signed and I thought I'm going to see my 18 months and then I'd go into coaching.
but he made that decision. And Fergie's done that with players. You know, how many times has you thought, wow, he's let a player go there. Why has he let him go? And then you think two months later, you know what? He was actually right. He was actually right because this club's going here. And unfortunately for the player, like all of us, we get a bit older. Um, and he said it was the right time to go. And at the time it was like, I said to my wife, no, I can still play. I used to go and do some work with the, the fitness guy and I can get, get my fitness. And I went to Derby, as I said, for uh, two years there and I gave it my all. But where Derby was and where Newcastle was, was totally different. You know, they're in a relegation battle and championship and, you know, Newcastle was going on to get into the Champions League and play into Milan and, like I said, against Juventus. So that, that just shows you what he, what he was like, his soccer brain. But he was just a gentleman. We miss him now. Football misses him. Not just, you know, his, his comments or how he was, just him as a person. You know, he was a good man. He was a good football man. And he was sorely missed and had a big, big impact in the northeast uh, because everybody wished we would have got him after KK. That didn't happen, but we, we was lucky enough to have him. Uh, and whether it was for the four or five years, and I've said it for the record, what they did to him at the end was disgraceful. Whether it was the players or the staff or whatever it was, was was totally out of order because um, he deserved more than that because he was, he was just a, a lovely, lovely man. But as I've explained, he could be ruthless. You know, he could sit down and say, you know what, your time's up, son. And I could argue until the cows come home. But he knew it. He knew he could. He'd been there and done it with all of them. So uh, utmost respect. And I said, uh, we, I love him to death. And he was a he was a wonderful, wonderful man and a big part of my my life that I thoroughly enjoyed. You clearly adore Newcastle as a club. Um, from your playing perspective, I've heard you in the media recently talking about how much you still adore the club. I need to ask you about your England career because you were capped by England three times while you were at Newcastle. How do you reflect on representing your country? It's the biggest honour you can ever have. You know, as I said, playing in the cup finals and, and playing for England, uh, for a young boy from Islington who told, you know, you're not going to make it to to play. I would have loved to have played more, but obviously Gary Neville and David Beckham had a wonderful relationship and top-class players and was doing very, very well. And then obviously like people like Glenn Johnson was coming into it. So when I was trying to compete with the England, you had, you know, Rob Jones was at Liverpool, Earl Barrett was Aston Villa. Um, you had Richard Hedgehill was coming through at Man City, Paul Parker, you know, Lee Dixon, David Beersley at QPR. There was about eight, seven, eight of us coming through uh, at the time. Um, but just a great, great honour. And Terry Venables, I must say, for the record, was a great coach. Was, a, a, a again, man management, as good as anything at that time. Particularly at that age, you know, Gaza, Adams, Merson. He could handle that lot. He knew how to make that lot tick, as well as someone like Gary Neville, you know, Alan Shearer, Teddy Sheridan. He knew how to make them tick as well. He was, he was brilliant. And I was lucky enough to get involved with Graham Taylor uh, as well earlier on, but I was only a young young boy there uh, and he was a, a great football man as well. But Terry, as an international coach and uh, playing for England was was brilliant. As I said, I would love to have more caps. Um, there was times in my career I felt like I had the chance to do that. I got called in with Terry, with Glenn Hoddle as well, but you know it wasn't to be. But at the end of it, I've, I've got them and no one can take them away from me. They certainly can. And you mentioned the likes of Paul Gascoigne, Paul Merson, etc. I want to get your opinion on Gascoigne because whenever anyone's played with Gascoigne, I simply have to ask the question, just how good was he? Because for me, looking back at the archives, as I say, due to my age, he just had the the confidence and the balls to, to do things that stereotypical, maybe British-based players didn't normally try. He was just incredible. For me, he was world-class. And I don't say that lightly as well, because you looked at a lot of them players that was around. He could win a game single-handedly, you know, and um, unfortunately he had the injury. Uh, but when he was in Italy, 
what I want people to think about Paul Gascoigne, I think everybody thinks about the antics off the field. But when I went to England, he'd sat down with me, Gazza, about the game, about football, about life in football, how the game is changing, just everything about it. And I was lucky enough as well. He was at Middlesbrough going down to uh, we meet Walter Smith at uh, for Everton, but it was in London because the uh, Ken Wright, the, uh, the owner, was in, lives in London. So Gazza was on the train and I met Gazza and I sat down there for two hours and we was talking about it. He was going to meet Walter Smith. And again, was just talking about the game, about what it was like at Rangers, how he was it, you know, what it was going to be like if he went with Everton and just his football knowledge and brain. And that's what's so disappointing that Paul never got back into it. And he had chances as well, Gazza. He's had like people, Bobby wanted him to come and coach. Terry wanted him to come and coach. His soccer IQ was so high. But he was just trying to translate that from him to players, he just found a little bit difficult um, to do. But when you sat down with him one-on-one, he was phenomenal. As a player, he was world-class. And as a person, he was phenomenal in the soccer terms. We all learn about him, how his generosity and, you know, how he was being outside and, you know, his sense of humour and everything else. But there's a bit more to gather than just that, being, you know, being funny and doing jokey. He was a real football person. And again, another person that I can't speak highly enough and, you know, you, you want him to do well. You want him to, you know, keep battling what he's having to battle all the time. And, um, you know, just as a, a top-class player, as I said, Euro 96, what he did to people like Colin Hendry and the games he did in Holland, he was phenomenal. He, he was, if it wasn't for Gaza, we we would never have got to the semi-final. He was brilliant. Forget forget Alan and Teddy, because obviously they was, but Gaza was that X factor. He was that world-class one that we had. And, um, uh, uh, that that was his stage as well. He loved it. We didn't realise, obviously, being involved. I wasn't in the, the the squad, but we was allowed to be in that thirty man roster, and we was a little bit cocooned because at hotels and not really. But the the what it was doing to the England, to the city, you know, the people going out was 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 surreal. Like my brother would tell me, and and, and things like that. It was it was fun. and a lot of that was down to him because he was phenomenal. He thrived in that atmosphere. He thrived. It. He loved it. The bigger the bigger the challenge, the bigger he he performed. Playing for club and country at the highest level, which you've done, is, is an incredible achievement. How do you reflect on your career post-Newcastle at Derby, QPR, returning to Wimbledon and, and finishing up non-league again with, with Dagenham and Redbridge? Yeah, I think it's just... Peter Smichael said it to me once, you know, I was chatting when he went back to Man City. He said, try and retire on your terms. You know, don't let, let people... So, you know, Derby was a real challenge. You know, the financial burden of being relegated, again, with... Uh, John Gregory, how he alienated. You're talking about Rude Hullet, man management. Like he, John pushed away Ravinelli, Craig Burley, Brian O'Neill, a lot of them. It was good players. Um, and we needed them at Derby, bringing the young ones through, the financial burden there. So it was a real challenge, you know, being chairman of the PFA as well. You see a lot of players getting injured, the financial problems that Leeds had had and other clubs was going through that. So it was draining. And it, I just gave everything I had for the last couple of years and I had nothing left to give. Um, and that's why I can maybe put my head on the pillar now and think I was ready to retire. I, I, you know, Bobby was right. I probably had another 18 months left and, and that was it. But, you know, and that's why I didn't want to, you know, I went to QPR. I didn't want to keep hopping around from club to club. I played non-league. I played lower league. I went back to Wimbledon for Stuart Murdoch because they was going moving to MK Dons and he was the coach. And I went there for like £90 a week, I think it was, or whatever. I mean, I was spending more money on, on petrol than, than I was actually. And it wasn't about the money at the time. I went there to help people in the offices. 
be a bit of a smile in their face just to get them through the three months. QPR, I went there with Ollie. It was great. They was doing well. The style of football wasn't, you know, for me, I wanted to try and get it and play. And he wanted to get out of that division, which he needed to do. And we parted company. And I didn't want to keep doing that. I didn't, like Peter said, I didn't want to keep drifting around and club to club, six months here, three months there. So that's when I, I went back to, again, Dagenham and Redbridge. I was finishing my pro licence. I said to John Steele, who was my coach, bloody 17, 18 years ago, he was there. Can I come down and do some work uh, with my pro licence and coaching? Uh, and, and did that there. So it was a full circle. And I thought, you know, I'd gone back to Wimbledon, where they'd given me my chance. I went back to if you like, John Steele and Dagenham and Redbridge, where they done it. And, and that's where it was. I didn't want to keep plodding around. Um, I wanted a new chapter in my life and, and that was coaching. And then, it, and, you know, lucky enough, it went into media as well uh, with, with Sky. So I went full circle, but Derby was a real challenge. Great football club, great people. But the, the way it was running the Premier League, it was on, you know, it was like a uh, dynamite waiting to explode because it was just living from, yes, we're paying now and we'll, we'll worry about it later. And to see people like lose their job day after day after day. And I could have quite easily just got in my car and drove off, but I, I, couldn't, I wasn't like that. I wasn't brought up to be like that. And, um, you know, whether it was girls crying in the, the shop because their mum had lost their job or fellas in the office or in the ground that had been sacked because they couldn't afford them to help in the stadium. It, it was heartbreaking. Um, and people don't see that in a, in a football club. Uh, but I wanted to be part of that. I was captain of the club and I felt it was my part to try and help these people. I couldn't do anything about it. But just I was there to say, look, if you need anything or you want anything, you know, I can try and do something. I don't know. And as I said, being in the PFA, give you a bit of an insight of, you know, it's not all rosy. You know, people think the Premier League is all, you know, glamour and money and airplanes and cars. There's another side where people get injured. People, you know, are having mental problems and people are, are finding it difficult. And again, that's come to light now. I'm, I'm talking 20 years ago that that happened. So. Um, but it was a challenging time. But I, it, again, I go back to it. My first thing, non-league helped me get through all of that and give me that bit of character and that self-discipline to help, you know, when people need it. And I think that's how I played my career. Everybody, was I, you know, the, the, the flashiest player in the world? No, but I give everything I got every time I played. And sometimes it was good enough and sometimes it wasn't, but I, I gave everything I had. Last two questions, both on coaching. Um, you, you retire, you obviously work in, in the media, which you've enjoyed. You, you go stateside, you're, you're still stateside now. You were at LA Galaxy working with their youth setup when when David Beckham was there. What was that like and how did he transform the game in the States? And do you know who the manager was at that time when I went back to Galaxy? Rudy Hullet. Rudy, Rudy Hullet, <laughs> yeah. And again, he, last, he lasted three weeks. He was on a golf course. So he, he soon went and Bruce Arena come in. Um, you know, it'd always been on my mind to come to America for a change of life for my kids. I've got, at the time, I had three young boys and we've been out to uh, sunny California and Southern California to see the, the the area where we was thinking of living. And it coincided well that, you know, I got the chance with a guy called Trevor James, who's coaching over here. We've actually with Sir Bobby Robson at Ipswich. They knew each other there um, and they let me coach the academy. Um, and it was great for me in the sense that it gave me an insight of what, US soccer was about, you know, and, you know, going into fitness training and kids was turning up with vans on and eating junk food. And I couldn't understand that, comprehend that. And I'm trying to change a little bit of mentality with some of the younger players. And we would do tournaments against like just local teams. You know, you're talking about LA Galaxy here. We would play against local teams. So it was a great learning curve about the college system, about, you know, super draft, all these things that you're hearing now. 
I was doing that 12 years ago um, and finding out about the mentality. And, you know, with Bruce Arena walking in to the changing room, you know, I'm trying to say to him, look, I've really got a good 17-year-old kid here. I think, you know, you need to have a look at him. Well, wh which colleges are you going to? Well, he ain't. He's not academic. He's, he's either going to be on the streets or he might have a chance of being a professional footballer. Well, no, if he's not going to college, then I'm not going to have a look at him. So, you know, just getting through that and understanding what was going through and to be here with my kids and to be able to pick them up from school and, you know, take them down the beach when we finished school and things like that. That was a big part of why I moved out here. But, you know, I missed the game. I missed football. Um, what was nice in a way, I was doing the media with Fox because that was in Los Angeles, which is like an hour and a half away. So I was working with Fox with the, the Premier League, the Champions League, Bundesliga, League MX, MLS. Uh, World Cups, Gold Cups. So I've been lucky enough to be around, you know, that type of soccer for 12 years as well. But as you probably can tell in the last probably year or so with my kids getting older, uh, I want to get into coaching. I've done my pro licence, as I said, with uh, with Stuart Pierce down in, in England. I did um, my A licence, B licence and, and, and ultimately your pro licence. So I want to give something back and I want to challenge. And the game's growing over here, you know, whether it's USL, MLS, um, so I want to get that challenge of, of trying to get into coaching if I can. But the States has been great. I mean, the football here is probably in the last three years. And a lot of that is down to David Beckham. You know, he came over here. He transformed the perception of what the MLS was uh, and, and is. And it gave the idea, you know, he started this academy, which wasn't really run as well as it, it should have been done. But it was it was a it was a step. You know, you have to have. You know, hiccups. You have to have problems to take a step back and understand where you've made the mistakes. And you know, David come out here, perform well. Then Robbie Keane come out, and obviously he was phenomenal with his performance. Slatan come out and scored wonderful goals. And now the game is in a position now where they've got the young players coming through their academies, like the Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, that are playing at the highest level in Champions League. And a lot of that was down to David coming over. Then the rest was following along. And, but, you know, people like Robbie Keane was, was sensational out here as well. But David had a big, big impact of saying, wow, if David can come out here, then it's opened his eyes. You know, David Villa was out here at uh, uh, New York. He did, he did great. Seattle Sanders come in, 52,000 people. You know, Atlanta gun their stadium, you know, 65,000 people regular going and watch games, you know. So it's, it, it's transformed. And a lot of that was down to David with his first footprint coming over. It was a big challenge for him. Uh, as he's found having into Miami now, trying to get a stadium and a, a club going there, he's, I think it's took him about four or five years to do it uh, because of the, the politics that go with it. But you are still batting against the NFL, Major League Baseball, basketball and college. College football, college basketball is huge. Certain parts of the country in Texas, you know, you have the Houston Dynamos and, uh, you know, Dallas are down there. <clears throat> and, a high school football club, which again for your viewers, a high school football will get more on a Friday night than the Dallas uh, than the uh, Dallas will get at a home game in the MLS soccer game, because it's the, the college football or high school football is so big. Uh, the the soccer MLS won't get them people coming to watch it. They get 30,000, 60,000 people in Texas to go and watch a high school game, where. Dallas and Houston are finding it hard to get 15, 16, 17,000 to people to watch it. So you're still up against a monster in college and the NFL, uh, unlike in the UK where you've, you know, you've got cricket, rugby, football. And you know you've got other sports, but predominantly it's football, football, football. Um, here you are up against it. But David broke a lot of barriers by doing that.
On coaching, the last question I've got for you, you've worked in the, in the States in the media, you've also been working in the States with some of the coaching and management technical director type roles as well. Would you consider a return to the UK for a coaching and managerial opportunity or because of where you are in your life? And we talked off air at the start, you've got the sunshine and I've got the rain. <laughs> do, do you prefer to stay in the States? I, I, it, you know, coming, it would have to be something special. And that's why the Newcastle thing straight away, you know, just being in that club and knowing what the fans want and knowing what the club should be like, that that's why I do it. No, I want to, uh, uh, you know, I'd look at every opportunity. You know, when Brad Friedel said to me, come and coach the U19s, US national team. I, I, yeah, okay, I'll go and do it. I went to Florida to go and help him. I went, you know, went around and did that. So, yeah, I, I'm looking. I'm looking and, you know, it would have to be something where... I feel I had a chance. I'm not just going to take something for the sake of it, but you know, Newcastle is a great club, is it? And you know that's a big part of my my history. Realistically, you know, are they Mike Ashley the only one going to really Steve Bruce going to pick up the phone to me? Probably not, because I may not tell them what they want to hear. You know, I want I want what's best for the club, and maybe not what's best for them. You know, but and that's how I feel, and you know, that's how I'm going to do it. But you know, I would do you know I am looking to get around you know I've, I am looking to get into the game I think I've got a lot to offer I've still been coaching here it's not as if I've been sitting here doing nothing playing Xbox yep. and looking at, at YouTube videos I've been coaching my kids I've coached through them academies you know they've gone off to college and you know one of them's doing well now and, and both of them have done well in, in their own rights all three of them have done well coaching uh, playing so I've coached them so yeah I'm looking to, to around now whether it's in MLS I spoke to Portland, you know, the owner there. I've spoken to people at Seattle, you know, Adrian Heath at Minnesota, you know, letting them know I'm interested. Gary Smith at Nashville, you know, I, I want to get into it. Um, but it has to be the right thing. You now, whether it's in the rain or in the sunshine, it doesn't really bother me because this will always be here. So I can always, always come back. So, but I am ready now. I've got the appetite. I've got the hunger. I've got the determination. I've got the focus. And I feel like I've got the knowledge to, to give into it because being out of it sometimes can give you a better outlook of, of what you're doing. So, um, cause I think the people that are in it all the time, it's just that, you know, that merry-go-real just going round and round. Sometimes it's a little step back. Uh, I know it's been a number of years can give you a fresh input. You know, I look at like Leipzig, Negglesman, what he does, Jesse Marsh, what he's doing, you know, you, you look Pep, Klopp, you, they're all different. It's not, there's a different style of coaching now than it was a long while ago uh, where everybody was quite, kicking teacups and throwing things at people where it's, it's changed now. It's changed. I've got kids. I treat all three of them different. Um, and that's, I think, how you have to treat players as well. You have a certain foundation and certain rules in my house, but you do treat all, all of them different because they are. They're different personalities. Where my oh, dad, I... you just, <laughs> sorry, my dad used to treat me the same as my brother and my sister. We was all, we was all treated the same where now it's, it's, it's slightly different. Well, I have to say that the passion and the knowledge is shown through in this interview and I just want to thank you for your time and I'd love to have you on again in the future as well. No problem, my friend. It's a pleasure. And as I said, I enjoy your work. I love, as I said, you know, you're doing a lot of good things and particularly at this time, interviews, people are reading things. I find it fascinating to hear other people's stories and, and what people are going through. So it, 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 more people do this, the better, you know, and I think it, you're doing a wonderful job and, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed, put it that way. And I feel like sometimes in this world, you feel like you're, hitting, you're, you're on that treadmill, but it doesn't get unnoticed. There's a lot of good work that's being done. But I really appreciate it. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our 
filled with song I'll be 